coming up on The Medicine Podcast. The smarter you are in the world now, the, the easier it is to manipulate you. What a and paradox. What, and what I mean by smart is I mean intellectually smart. So one of the things that Steiner really shared with us is the way to educate is through intelligence. That intelligence always carries with it a, a, a sense of love and responsibility and freedom. Whereas the intellect is a little bit like you used the word angst earlier or anxious. That, the, the, the etymology of those words literally mean to narrow. You narrow your perception, you narrow your breathing, which Steiner says is actually just enlivened thinking. And that thinking itself is breathing. Welcome back to The Medicine Podcast. My name is Mimi and I'm sitting next to my favorite human on earth. My love, my lover, my king, Chase. What is going on, everybody? Man, we are so excited for today's conversation. Uh, I got introduced to our guest today here about a month or so ago and uh, just ha absolutely have my mind blown in uh, the Abundance Archetype community that I'm a part of. Um, so I'm really honored to get to introduce our guest today, Edmund Knighton. Welcome to the Medicine Podcast. Thank you, Chase. Thank you, Mimi. It's great to be here. We are so excited. As I told you before we pushed record, I am so excited because I've only heard little bits and pieces. I was in the room when the call was going with Chase's Abundance Archetype group. And I just, and then we had great conversation afterwards, you know, after the call, Chase is just, he's like, oh my God, I can't wait to talk to this guy. And so it, it actually sparked a lot of wonderful dialogue and discussion between us. And I'm, I'm so excited to be able to offer that to our listeners. Um, the first question that we ask every guest on the medicine is, what do you love in your life? What aspect of your life do you love so much that you wish you could gift it to everyone? My wife popped into my head right away, 34 years of just total, incredible, incredible bliss, you know, and, and conflict being a part of that bliss, just all bliss. Uh, my beautiful son, I got a beautiful boy with autism and Down syndrome, and uh, he, he's the light of my life. Mm. Uh, the, the gratitude for the, the men's groups that I'm in, the men's councils that work. Uh, being able to work with individuals with uh, with consulting work and and deep deep listening accounts work, yeah. And then uh, the other thing it might be just kind of weird to say, but I'll say it anyways. Is uh, this morning in particular nothing, mm. nothing. Uh, I was just thinking like, what am I full of right now? And I and I thought it's just being nobody and being nothing being nowhere and i'm super grateful for the the spaciousness of that mm. yeah wow yeah i love that that's something that you can meditate on for probably hours and time just disappears we especially when we live in such short-sightedness you know so much of a, our time is spent looking at a screen we yeah. forget how much space we actually have and, and even in, you know, we live in a condo on an island outside of San Diego and, you know, we essentially have like 40 roommates because we live in this complex with a bunch of other condo owners. <laughs> but even that, when you actually think about the amount of space that you do have in your life and a very anxious feeling is almost as if there's this weight upon your chest. But in reality, we do have so much space to acknowledge and even yeah. sometimes that level of mindfulness to, to make aware 
how much room you actually have to breathe and expand your breath is very anchoring to the present moment and uh, very much uh, a tool for enlightening oneself on the the lack of stress and anxiety that that you can actually have in one moment. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just I mean I'm looking at your two your two physical bodies there, but then I also realized from a from a quantum perspective, you, you guys are as big as that island, you know. <laughs> Right, right, and bigger and bigger. Right. So even though you're in this little, I'm in this tiny little room. Yeah, it doesn't stop with the room. That is for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. I think it's it's you know uh, a, actually a meditative practice that I've heard from people like John Wineland, who does a lot of men's work. Um, you know, in the masculine space, like people cultivating a healthy, uh, nourished masculine energy, is to focus on you know, the space within your body, the space between cells, the space, you know, in your lungs. And it really anchors you into that like masculine strength, I think. Um, anyways, I just I just thought of him and, and uh, I've, I've heard and seen that sort of as a meditative practice. And uh, I think one of the benefits being when we feel constricted, you know, ang an anxious feeling is a constricted, almost like prison-like feeling, like you're just imprisoned by your your anxiety and focusing on the space, even the space between words as someone is speaking is a sort of a meditative practice. Anyways, I'm, I'm going down the rabbit hole here, but, um, no, actually you're level. speaking, you're speaking my, my incredible love language. Cause I wrote <laughs> my, my doctoral dissertation on exactly what you just talked about. Wow. The qualitative perception of the space between mm. and not space as a metrical phenomenon as quantitative, but What's the quality of space, as you said, between cells or between people or between me and my higher self? And, and is there a way to um, create exercises to, to have experiences of that while we're embodied? So I spent three years just writing, researching, and thinking about that connection with the space between all things. Mm, mm, I love that. I think or of who I am. So you just nailed it. <laughs> I think we're done. Thank you guys so yeah, much. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna... <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking is like, that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. Obviously it's a whole dissertation. Um, but you know, I, I'm sure, and you, I won't speak for you, but like, as you look out into the world and, you know, uh, have this unique perspective from the Rudolf Steiner and the Waldorf school perspective, when you're looking out at the world and the individuals that are making it up, there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of mental health issues. There's a lot of just issues all around global crises. Like from your perspective, focusing on the space between and everything that you just spoke of, what are you seeing in our world uh, with the individuals that is that are making it up? Like, I, I don't really know how to frame that question, but I'm just no, curious yeah. what you see when you, because I know what I see, but it's, com it's probably completely different from your lens. Yeah, I, I would say my lens, that's a, boy, that is such a deep question, Mimi. Um, the first thing I see, which is helpful for me, so I don't lose my love for humanity, is that I see myself. Mm. Um, and when I say myself, I don't mean like Edmund, I, say, I mean the entity that is me that knows that I've been here for eons and will, you know, God willing, continue to be here for eons. And, and so I don't have that sense of separation or otherness from all of what's going on in the world. So all of the all of the mental illness and all of the trauma and individuals who are working, I would say individuals who are working really hard to awaken people. 
And those individuals um, stand on two different sides. There is one side that chooses to work in a space of separatism and othering and manipulation and enslavement and a kind of a darkness uh, that they welcome themselves and they welcome other people to be underneath them and that. And at the same time, folks uh, have an opportunity when they get those invitations uh, to move in that direction or not. It is their own free will. We don't get enslaved by other people. No one else determines our response to a situation. No one else is the master of my feelings uh, or my thoughts or my actions. I'm completely free. And that way I don't uh, get to be a victim. And I have to take responsibility for everything that I that I say and do and feel. And I know that those things that I that I do and move in the world have, uh, they, they're forming my future being. The way that I speak now and feel now and the thoughts that I have are actually forming what I'm going to look like the next time I come around. And so when I think about those people, um, I see them as myself. I see, I see their striving and I see that all serve the creator and all serve creation in their own way. One of the thoughts I came up with this morning was, it was kind of startling on one hand, but, um, excuse me, God is evil. God is evil. That's a bold and potentially confusing statement for a lot of it people. It is. It <laughs> is. And, and, and what I mean by that is that if we're going to live in a space of duality, we're going to call something good. We don't have anything to compare it to unless there's something evil. And in my experience, the creator is everything. And so God is evil. And it's really that simple. And those, those individuals who are working the path of what I would call evil or, or elitism um, are, are working super hard for God. And a lot of them don't even know it. But you see what those folks are doing in the world, and they're a beautiful reminder to the path that I'm on which is yeah. to love and serve other people and to radiate my, my love to them. And every time I see an individual do something um, that, that can impoverish someone else's life, it redoubles my love. Mm-hmm. And, and I recognize that my love for them and my appreciation for them also has to be present. Otherwise, I'm just digging a hole for myself. I'm not doing anything to them by hating them. I'm doing is hating me. All I'm doing is just getting small and ugly and mean and and limiting myself as a, as a creator, as somebody who can think and 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 move freely in the world and create things. That's 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 what I want to be. Is I want to co-create. I want to be that drop in the ocean. So that's my experience of when I look out into the world. Otherwise, I think I would be completely demoralized. I would be sarcastic and cynical. Um, I would have righteous anger and feel really good about that. Uh, I would just go down, like you said, I would go down a rabbit hole, but it would be one of of pretending that those beings that are all created in unity are separate from myself and that we're not all actually working toward the same thing. And at some point in their development, certainly um, they recognize that that we've all been working for the same thing. And in a moment, they shift. They shift polarity and they become aware of the fact that they've been working they've been working on behalf of all of us the whole time mm-hmm. yeah actually a lot harder than the rest of us have been because that path of separateness is really tough to hold you got to be 95 percent on point there you've got to be coherent in a light 
way, in a laser-focused way. Whereas you and I working together, all we got to do is sort of creep above 50% and we're, we're in the home zone. Yeah. It's such an interesting perspective and one that I I aspire to. I can't say that I always feel that way. It's something that I value and, um, you know, w- will continue to remind myself that it's, you know, not, not participating in the othering. I can say it, but it's another thing to actually live it and embody it. Yeah, I really feel like as we sit in this space and we talk about this, I feel the truth in in the articulation of what it actually means to understand that we're we are in this together and that that polarity is held up by those who who you know may frustrate us. I, I go out into the world and I'm like conscious of that reality, but I'm incompetent in the way that I embody it and get frustrated yeah. and and yeah. you know still think that there's some sort of finite game that I'm. Com- I'm trying to outdo with good the the bad that's out there. And that is this, you know, tricky, slippery slope down into this uh, win or lose game that we think we're a part of so often. And this really is the infinite game. And and um, I love all of it. And I, I know so much of this is rooted in, in the law of one, which which uh, was absolutely, you know, a life changing uh, read for both of us as we were along in our journey. But before we get too much further um edmund would love to get a little background on on you um you know obviously everybody's aware at this point you're brilliant <laughs> and um you know i've had the chance to hear a little bit about rudolf steiner from you as well as the waldorf education and your involvement um over the years with yeah. waldorf um and so i'd love to to even before we get into a little bit of who rudolf steiner was uh, waldorf education and some of the men's work that you do maybe share with us a little bit about you know your background. How did you get into this work? What, what have you been up to in, in the world and what impact have you been been a part of? Um, and a little bit of the backstory as far as like how you got into that space. You want me to start from here and go backwards or start from the back and go forwards? Yeah. Uh, whatever works for you. Maybe not linear, maybe just a, a whole lot yeah. of uh, whatever comes up. Let, let me just see what's here. Well, I mean, you mentioned the law of one, and you mentioned Steiner, and and I would say that, um, uh, like like probably, you know, ninety percent of, of of America certainly used to be. I, I came out of a, a, a Christian background, and um, yeah, it was okay. You know, like I like the minister; he's a nice guy. Uh, I like the candlelight service at Christmas. Yeah. You know, I like making I like making that love banner at Sunday school for my mom. But other than that, like it didn't didn't, go, didn't quite get there. But I didn't know it didn't get there because I didn't know what there was. I didn't know there was a there. And yeah, I had an interesting upbringing. My my parents were both married four times each before I left the house. So um, I never thought I wanted to get married or have kids just because I, I I saw all the ways that. You struggled and it didn't work. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this institution called marriage is, uh, should be institutionalized. <laughs> uh, and, and then when I went to college, I sort of, uh, I thought I was okay. I think most of us think we're okay <laughs> until we're not, you know, we know, we all know we've got stuff and, uh, I just completely decomposed. I just, I just rotted right there in front of myself. Uh, I lost my shit. Uh, I got kicked out of college. Uh, was unable to have relationships with with anybody, men or women. So I couldn't have friends, and I couldn't have lovers. 
I tried, but it it, uh, it backfired. And I got into just uh, yeah, just the darkest place that I could ever imagine. And I ended up being disowned by both sets of my families. You know, they had marriages at that point and families there, and and completely lonely, just completely lonely. I had I'd had everything stolen from me through being a a drug dealer, and it was. Uh, yeah, it really couldn't have gotten any worse. And I was, uh, I hitchhiked down to uh, Balboa Park and I was homeless there for a few months. Um, and uh, some guy there named Todd was a stained, stained glass artist and he took me in and, uh, in his little place next to the, the zoo there. And he said, Hey, man, you know, I'd love to make love with you, man. You're beautiful. And, you know, but, but I'm not going to touch you. Like it's totally up to you. But, you know, here's, here's a room. You know, I I got a house in, in the other, but I I stay here sometimes. But there's a bed here, and you're welcome to stay here, man, for as long as you like. And just a beautiful human being. So he um, he helped me get back on my feet, and backpacked through Mexico with this young guy from Germany. And then I decided, man, I need to I got to make it up with my parents because you know I love them and they love me. Uh, and it's been a rough road for for them for sure. They were scared, uh, and. So I made up with them and I, I reapplied to school, but I, I, I just, I got back into school, but I thought I, yeah, there's something else here for me. I don't know what it is. So I ended up on this 84 acre farm, this, this beautiful farm. This guy was able to um, just do whatever he wanted with it because he was independently wealthy. So he didn't care how much money he spent. So he made it, you could eat this soil. It was so freaking good. So I helped him. And I ended up wanting to live in nature. So I just, I'm going to live in the woods here. So I built this platform out in the middle of nowhere. And I just climbed up that thing. And every night, that's where I lived. And I ate the food that we grew. And it was it was primarily melons, watermelon. So watermelon, honeydew, cantaloupe. And it was so highly mineralized. And it had so much love in it. We were studying... Um, uh, and Wigmore Hippocrates Institute out of here cancer. We were studying a guy named Johnny Love Wisdom. He's got seven PhDs and he's just off the charts in terms of what the body is made up of, all the different energetic systems and what's needed. And I found myself just naturally just eating the watermelon. And it was this yellow fleshed melon. It was incredible. You just stick a fork in it and it popped open. You didn't even need a knife. And it was like crystals. It was like God inside wow. there. Wow. wow. And six months later, I realized, I realized all I've been doing has been eating watermelon. And I'm completely focused. My energetic body, I've never had more energy. My capacity to understand people and really to understand their thinking sometimes when they're not even speaking. Um, to understand myself, my, my connection to creator my connection to nature was just like this this happens through eating watermelon <laughs> right what what is going on here and right about that time this guy came and he started working on the floor he said hey man you got to meet this guy chief little summer i was like dude i i'm not it's no way i'm not a guru guy like that's not my scene and he's like no man that no he's not he's not like that and not and Finally, he just he just was relentless. He would not stop. And so I went with him one night and I met this guy and I was like, wow, this guy is like a mountain of a human being. 
he's completely like innocent and joyful and playful. And, uh, but man, I would never want to mess with this guy. You could just feel that like deep inside that mountain, that guy's going nowhere. Like he's just, I, I fell in love immediately. I'm like, wow. And his wife, Lord might Ray, this is beautiful human being. She's still on the planet. He's, he's, uh, he's helping the planet. And so I just said to myself, well, I'm going to find out what this guy is all about. So he said, uh, yeah, so, you know, we sit down in kind of a council on Thursdays and, you know, once you show up. So I sit down and we start doing this I am chanting, which is just amazing. I do it to this day, the way that he, he shared it with us. And then he starts opening this book and he starts reading this information. This was like 1986 or something. And I'm like, whoa, this is, wait. All of this information is exactly spot on. And then he just goes off script and he starts just talking from completely from a direct connection with this work. And so, I, you know, I go up afterwards, I take a look at the book and it says the law of one on it. And I said, you know, you know, well, what is this? You know, I'm, I'm 18. I'm just like, I'm fresh off the boat, man. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, if, you, if you'd like to sit in a, in a private council with me, then, um, you know, I can give you a sense of really what's behind this. And I said, sure. And so we, we made a point. We sat down together and I sat down with him and he said, well, the first thing I do is just, I'm going to align and balance my chakras with yours, with your permission. And that allows me then to have a conscious connection between our higher selves. So we can actually talk to each other from higher self to higher self. And I said, absolutely. So we aligned and balanced our energy centers and, um, and his body disappeared. Wow. Wow. And yeah, I said, whoa, initially, but then I, but then this crazy thing happened in my head. I said, and this is the most natural thing. And this is the way that things are supposed to be. Like, this is actually what's happening. There's a body there, but there's also not a body there. And, and then instead of his body, initially there was this, this pyramid. He, his body was a pyramid instead. And on top where his head or eyes should be was just this incredible, beautiful eye gazing at me. And all the time he's just continuing to talk. So I can tell like there's still an entity there. There's, it was unbroken connection during the whole time and very relaxed conversation about, about us connecting and, and, uh, and my future and so forth. Uh, and what was living on my heart is questions that I had. And then I, I could see this, this pyramid sort of have light coming from behind it. And so, so I just, I just thought, well, maybe I should mention this, you know? <laughs> like it didn't occur to me until then, but I just thought, you know, so I just said, you know, well, I, yeah, I just want to, I just want to mention that like I'm seeing a pyramid with an eye on top of it with like two lights coming. He said, oh yeah, the two lights, this is my, my guide and he named his guide and this is my other guide. And, uh, you know, it's just like, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to be with you. And I just was like, see, I knew it was normal. I knew if I said it. He would just be like matter of fact about it. Like, yeah, this is the way it is. And, uh, you know, a little bit of take when I had that conversation with Paul Check, like three hours later, his wife's in the background banging pots and pans and like trying to get us out of being connected together. And we heard so much laughter. I mean, it was, it was hilarious. I've never imagined how much joy is on the spiritual path. 
and how much connection and how much love. Uh, and it was just, uh, and at the same time, it was completely normal. This is, I recognize this. I remember this as this is the way it's supposed to be. Um, so all of that, that early childhood of, you know, sort of being in the, in the Christian, uh, faith with the, with the work we're doing there. I mean, it was well-meaning. It was definitely well-meaning, but it, it wasn't effective. It wasn't transformational. And so that's how I met the law of one. And then very soon after I met Steiner's work mm. and when I met Steiner's work, I recognized, I placed it within the milieu of the law of one because the law of one has uh, certainly a, a larger perspective. Uh, but what Steiner brought was there was actually a human being on the planet doing this work. Whereas Ra just visited a couple of times and um, <laughs> they did a little bit of work here. They got back in the light spaceship and they sort of looked at each other and one said to the other like you know that didn't go too well did it <laughs> right you know yeah so in a nutshell i mean that's really my work i've ended up being president of a 24 7 uh, autism care facility where we did amazing work based on steiner's uh, perceptions uh and that facility is still in existence uh, in california uh and i was president of, uh, of rudolf steiner college which trained teachers around the world to to work with children and uh, in Waldorf education. I've been a, a yoga instructor and uh, worked in academia for quite a bit. Uh, if you guys, uh, if you ever if you ever think about having a baby, uh, I ended up being a professor of pre and perinatal psychology, which is a fancy word for what happens in the womb at the moment of conception and then beyond that. And that's a completely different story of the birth of my son that my wife felt literally when she orgasmed, she was touched by a higher being. And she said that right at that moment of, of orgasm. And wow. that was our coming. Wow. And, and then one of the women I was working with, one of the students, uh, when she first met me, she said to me, um, she said, are you pregnant? And this was months before we were pregnant. And I, I thought she was a little crazy, you know? Right. And I said, no, like, first of all, I'm a guy. And second of all, at that point, I didn't want to have children. And I'd mentioned that to you guys. I had no interest in having kids. And the next time I saw her, she said, are you pregnant? And I said, no. And she just looked at me and dead in the eye. And she said, you will be. Wow. wow. But yeah, I just thought she was nuts. So much so I didn't say anything to my wife when I got home. And then we had a cervical cap. We were both 45 years old. She was not um, fertile at the time we were making love. Spermicidal jelly, you name it. And she came to me after we made love and she showed me the flattened cervical cap. It was just like a complete, like there was nothing there. It was so thin. We looked at each other. We knew exactly what happened. And then I saw that woman's face like in my, in my mind's eye. Oh, wow. You will be. And I was like, and the crazy thing, I went to her and I said, with all this amazement, how did you and all this? And it was just like that chief experience. She looked at me and she said, I just had these things. She, it was like drinking a cup of coffee. Like, yeah, I just, I just know these things. Like, what do you, let's have a conversation about something else. That is just the way it is. Did you know that Mushy Love Latte contains three to five times more organic mushrooms per serving than almost any other mushroom product out there? How did we do this? Well, we started with the question, how do we get the most mushrooms possible packed into each scoop and still make it delicious? It took us a while, but the result is a whopping one gram of chaga and tremella in a mixture that tastes like a liquid cinnamon roll. 
to support robust immunity, glowing skin and hair, and overall cellular hydration. All organic ingredients, no weird fake sweeteners, and our mushroom growers have over 40 years of experience. They are OGs in the mushroom industry. We weren't interested in creating anything but the best for you guys and ourselves. Grab a bag of Cinnamon Swirl Mushy Love Latte at GetMushyLove.com and you can use the discount code MEDICINE, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, just for being a valued listener of the podcast. Enjoy. Yeah. And so those experiences in my life have given me this picture that I'm not looking for bells and whistles. I'm not looking for fantastic lights going off. And that's that's why that nobody and nothing and nowhere piece, that spaciousness piece, really gives me a sense of being present and being ready for whatever happens. Like this conversation, you know, this apartment wants to like put all the things that I want to say to you guys down on a huge list. And in fact, I did that. But that doesn't have anything to do with the relationship that we have together. That we, I can send you the list. Yeah, I totally feel that. Yeah, we'll take the list. We'll, yeah. take, we'll take it all. <laughs> we'll yeah. take it all. You can have it. You can have it. Yeah. Keep going because this, yeah. is, this is just so great. Um, What a beautiful backstory. Yeah, and, thank you uh, for sharing that. Yeah, I, it's so appreciated. And, and um, you know, I, I resonate with the, you know, we grew up Christian. We grew up evangelical Christian and and uh i left a little more abruptly than mimi did and and um i can definitely now look back and see some of the bright spots and have gratitude for that space but you know it wasn't until work like law of one where i heard it i listened i listened to it in fact out of nowhere with having a very uh, minute spiritual life altogether, and there was something just wildly resonating about it i i mean i thought it was weird I, I was so out, it was so out of context for me. I'm like, what? They're channeling this like entity, what an alien? Like, what is this? At the same time, what was being articulated felt like it just struck me at my core, which I never ever felt through kindergarten, through college at, in a Christian environment. Yeah. And I, we had, we had recently just got back together. We were childhood sweethearts. We got married, divorced. Um, spent three years apart and had recently uh, reconciled at this moment. This was about five years ago. Mm. And I was like, babe, I don't know what I just listened to, but this was profound. Yeah. Like this was absolutely profound. And, you know, we both, it's both since, uh, since then been a, been a transformative mm-hmm. work for us. And there is something about those, those moments where you recognize something so far beyond your rational mind at that, it just bypasses any sort of filtering and yeah. it's, it's just like a, like a cord is struck within your body yeah. that, that something is true. It was, it felt like to me as I was reading, which it took me about eight months to get through both books because I was, you know, line by line and then I would stop and think. And so it took me a long time to actually get through the material. And as I was reading, there were specific points where I remember it felt like something was clicking into place. It felt like almost like when you go to the chiropractor and it feels a little like, "Mm," and then they do one movement and it clicks into place and you're like, oh, wow. Oh my God, so much. You just feel it in your body. That's how I felt was like a puzzle piece clicking into place where I had never heard it articulated this way, but something about it felt like a remembering, not an initial learning. And it was easy to say as I was reading like, oh, yeah. 
And it was the first time that I felt like I had a an effective framework for the the existence of good and bad, light and dark, you know, good and evil, and why things happen the way that they do and how we can evolve ourselves, like almost like a, a roadmap. And, um, you know, I could go on and on, of course, but it was the first time where I felt like there was actually a framework that made sense for why things happen the way that they do. Yeah. Previously in the church, there is no such, there is a sort of a diluted explanation, but it's sort of like God works in mysterious oh, ways. Oh, it's just it's just contradictions all over the place. And so it's, yeah. so, it's so vague that there, there can never be that clicking into place because it's a puzzle piece that fits no other puzzle piece because it's so vague. And and love one felt like clicking into place for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I resonate with with both of what you're sharing about about that work. Maybe yeah. maybe we can because our, our audience has heard a little bit about love one, but maybe from your perspective, Edmund, since we've talked about uh, Steiner and we've talked about love one, if you would if you could give the you know elevator pitch for both both the um, you know what what anthroposophy anthroposophy is Steiner's like spiritual nobody can pronounce it man don't worry about it <laughs> that's just that's his spiritual science correct yeah and then this this law of one and and you know from your perspective how you looked at both of these and maybe just a general you know definition of of each one and how you've seen them you know woven together hmm. I haven't seen them woven together in all of my work in Waldorf for the past you know 35 40 years I've never spoken to anybody about the law of one mm. and I've never had anybody bring it up to me. Interesting. Uh, that's an interesting piece because when Jared and I started talking about, could we work together in some way with, with men online, you know, he, he brought this idea and he totally assumed the same thing you did that, yeah. that, uh, that I've been, <clears throat> you know, maybe promulgating this and that there are people who are doing this work and, and there, there, there may well be, uh, but I haven't met them. I haven't had those conversations. The, the idea, like you said, of, of, of ET channeling uh, in the Waldorf community, I've just never, I've never seen it with Raw or anybody else. Um, and so I, I simply wove that work together myself uh, and didn't really even talk about it with my wife, uh, although she has a strong connection to the law of one. And um, so that's so that's an interesting thing, and it's, and it's exciting for me. I'm getting all like, woo, uh, can't even talk anymore. Getting so excited thinking about how to weave those two things together uh, with Jared and and with folks, and so and so we will do that. I would say for me in my own life, how did I do that? Um, the the context of Ra and the evolution of not just of humanity but of creation is is the backdrop against which I could see Steiner placed within that. And so Steiner was inside of it looking out and speaking from that place. And Ra was outside of it looking in and speaking from that place. And and so there's this beautiful thing called the Tao, T-A-U, and there are two faces on the Tao and both of them look up toward heaven, but one of them looks up this direction and one the other. It's just one of the most beautiful um, sculptures that I've ever seen on the planet. And, and I hold a picture in a way that Steiner is this one face and that Rod is this other. And the two of them, it's like two lights beaming 
and radiating love to all creation from the perspective of being on the earth and then from the perspective of being outside of oneself. And that's not to say that Steiner didn't spend a lot of time from the outside looking in while he was embodied, because that's what his his life path was about, was the idea of karma and reincarnation, which is that the three of us, you two and I, have been on this planet so many times together, uh, and we have this beautiful veil that gets placed between us each time we get to see each other again. And the lessons that we didn't quite move to this place of, of being unswayed are the lessons that we get to play out again. And that's that's just the the that's the real game. You know, you talked about the the competition game of like those who those who are elite and, and manipulate others in the world and maybe like, you know, fighting against that. But the, the real game, I think, is how do we recognize our connection to individuals and and so that was what Snyder brought. He said, when you first see another person's eyes on this planet, you get a flash of everything about that person. It, it's, uh, it would be sort of Heinlein's way of saying you rock everything about who that human being is in a flash, in an intuitive flash, and that it completely evaporates. And the rest of your experience is the capacity to unpack, to like, like a rose's petals, to, to grow and unfold what you saw in that flash of a moment. And those are the kinds of things that Steiner is looking for. And so when I met my wife, for example, we immediately uh, sat, looked into each other's eyes. It wasn't like we said, let's sit down and do this. It was again, that natural thing, it's organic. And all of a sudden she grew this huge ruddy red face with this red beard and red Viking hair. And she was just massive. I was this beautiful woman she was looking at. And we found ourselves up on a house in Scandinavia, and then we watched her drown in the ocean and our two wow. children be left with them. And um, we were like, oh, shit. All right. And then this this Chinese businessman interaction that we had, and then being daughters of a, of a native chief um, in a Sioux life. And this is the thing he's looking for, is what what were the places that you didn't get to integrate? that you left the life and there wasn't an opportunity. And how can you come back and make yourself aware of those things and then do that integration? That was really why he came. That was what his life purpose was. Now, to juxtapose Ra's purpose, you know, when you ask Ra what he does, you know what he does? All day long. And I, I say he, but that's sort of yeah, hey, silly. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's six and, and a half million beings who are one being, who are so in love with each other in creation that they are willing to have every thought, every emotion, and every action be revealed to all the other six and a half million in every moment. You know what they do all day long? They radiate love to all of creation. Yes. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, when you ask like, well, you know, what's, what's the purpose? That's Ross' purpose. And he says 90% of creation is able to receive that love. Hmm. 90%. And we're talking about creation. <laughs> Not wow. just one planet or right. or universe, but multiverses and and what lies beyond that. And it and it's an infinity. And so his capacity for that, uh yeah, it's a practice that I took up once I found out, oh, that's you, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, that's it's it's sort of hard to wrap your mind around that that's even a, a possibility, of course. But um, for for our listeners who may not be familiar with Rudolf Steiner, the man, and what he did here and and what he taught, could you give us, um, you know, just a basic foundation of who Rudolf Steiner was, the man, and how did he contribute in the physical three D world? How did he contribute to humanity while he was here in that lifetime? Okay. You want me to answer one of those boring questions? <laughs> <laughs> I want our listeners to have the foundation of where we go further in the conversation and to know who Rudolf Steiner, the the physical man, the entity was um, while he lived here. I'm being, I'm being funny. I'm, yeah, no, I'm, I love it. You know, when Steiner was a boy, he saw a woman. His dad worked in the railway station, and he he saw a woman, and he didn't know what the connection was with this woman, but she was pretty ethereal, and she didn't say anything. And it, he was, you know, probably about seven years old, and he later heard that at the moment he saw that woman, his his aunt had committed suicide, mm-hmm. taken her life, and he would have had no way of knowing that. And he recognized as a seven year old, say nothing, say nothing to anyone. But he also recognized, okay, there's something that happens for me that doesn't happen for other people as far as I'm aware yet. That was the the first and most significant event in his life where he recognized, I have the capacity to see what's here in front of me, but I also have the capacity to see what's what's not in front of me or what's in front of me in in a different way. And so that sparked in him this interest to study mathematics. And he studied mathematics and the biological sciences to the extent where he could think through from what I would say is geometry to sacred geometry, to the capacity to build an incredible building that's still listed among architects um, as one of the most amazing feats of the 20th century, the Gertian. And then after it burned down, building a second one. So he was able to to create through mathematical thinking a connection to the spiritual world and then able to share that connection. So the first thing he did that was of significance is after World War One, he tried to provide the world with what he called a threefold social order that had what the French resistance had. It had liberty, fraternity, equality. Um, but it had more than that in all of these three different domains of the human being. But the world had a different aim in mind. They wanted to carve up the different nations and exploit all the natural resources in each of them. America at the head of that, um, but certainly the G5 or G7, uh, they had they had the picture of how to gerrymander those, those pieces. And so he was left with this image of how humanity could really develop with no real way of figuring out how to do it. Then there were workers around Germany who needed to figure out what to do and how to orient themselves to the world. So he started talking to these workers, and one of them owned a cigarette factory. And the guy said, I I want you to help educate my workers' kids because this is the way that we're going to change humanity. These adults who are in politics, they've already got their, their picture of the way the world is made, but kids... Kids are like gods. They're open. They're beautiful. They're they're ready. And these kids that are disadvantaged, that are from the lower economic sector, why not start with them? And he said, absolutely. And he also made it co-ed, which was completely unheard of in that time. 
And he also said to the German government, you will give me no restrictions. And they said, we'll give you all kinds of restrictions because we're the German government. And but what he negotiated is he said, I get to choose all my own teachers. And he didn't choose any teachers who had any, any kind of training whatsoever, except kind of like his. They had training in one area of thought that they had clearly distinguished a kind of openness for. Uh, and he invited them in and he started this school. It was called uh, it was called Waldorf because the name of the factory was the, the Waldorf uh, factory. And after he created that, he realized that nutrition is a huge piece of what's necessary. Uh, and so uh, all of the things that happened that he created, none of them were something that he said, hey, I've got this great idea, God, I want to put this thing on the map. It was people coming to him, banging on his door relentlessly and saying, they're starting to spray our crops with stuff that's making us all sick. This is horrifying stuff. What are we going to do? He said, this is what you do. You make a connection with the cosmos as well as the earth. And this is called biodynamics. And organics was a, a lower level spinoff of that. But the, the notion of biodynamics is consonant with something like, if you read the book Anastasia, which is also ironically a channeled book, um, Anastasia was this book written by this very well-to-do businessman in Russia who ended up making love to this woman in the middle of the boreal forest up in the middle of nowhere in Siberia, where she wore almost nothing and just lived in the wild. And he, he just thought, man, I just, you know, I've struck gold. And then she, he realized, oh my God, she's a teacher and I'm fucked. And he completely became her student and he wrote another eight books. But one of the things she talked about was that her capacity to work telepathically with individuals who have little home gardens. And he said, Steiner, as well as this, um, this teacher, Anastasia, um, who really comes out of a Tibetan and I think an Atlantean lineage, that the task is to just grow our own food with love uh, or to have it grown by people who love us. And it's the energy in the food and, and maybe it's the supplements. It doesn't matter what we're taking, but to know those human beings, to love them and to have them love us, to have them love the alchemical process of moving from seed to to table, but really moving from from love to love, from their love to our love, and then we create through destruction of these substances consciousness. And this is what Steiner was all about. And he said the cosmos plays an active part in this. So biodynamics would be the second thing that I would say is a is a huge piece of what he brought. Uh, the third piece is there were doctors who were just banging down his door trying to figure out how do we heal? How do we work with human beings? And he brought anthroposophical medicine. Uh, those are the, the three that I would say are the deepest. He was also just an incredible um, artist in so many different mediums. And he, he said that the, the, the human being to be an artist, and that's why Walder schools have so much art in them, not so much to become an artist, but to think artistically, to, to feel artistically, to, to move in the world artistically, to have that kind of nobility. Uh, those are the pieces that he brought to us. And the, the Waldorf school, he understood that relationship is everything. And so in the, in the primary years, you have the same teacher who teaches all of the main subjects from first to eighth grade. So you get to know the parents, you get to know the children in an incredibly deep way. And there's a karmic, obviously a karmic connection there. And that the, the teacher is forced to be one step ahead of the students at every moment, uh, because it's always a new curriculum for her. Uh, my wife's a fifth grade teacher right now, and my son is in that class. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's, you know, we, we've been 30 years just in this 
uh, in this movement. And the beauty of the that work never ceases to amaze me. So that's what I would say about you know who he was and and what did he bring. Uh, he gave over six thousand lectures and wrote over fifty books. You, you you couldn't digest his work in a lifetime. It's it's the same level of density as the raw material, uh, probably worse. Uh, because at least raw was was not being translated into English from German, mm. uh, and so unless you speak German, and even if you do, you're listening to German spoken through him. Steiner was a conscious channel. I mean, just you know, he was spoken through by Michael. It's he didn't come through with this stuff on his own. He was uh, he was awake enough to know what the good dope was and to and to share that. Uh, and when he was off, he he said, you know. You know, course correct. Yeah, so give you a little picture of, of of what he brought. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's really beautiful. And and again, it's like we could talk all day about the things that he's that he's done and and said. And um, you know, I similarly had a familiarity with him through Waldorf. You know, uh, through our even our upbringing, which was mainstream. Most towns have a Waldorf school, and you hear like, oh, it's a Steiner school, and that's what you hear about. And you're like, oh, Rudolf Steiner, Steiner school, and I but I had no depth as, as it pertained to how much he was involved in. And as we stepped into the health and wellness space was familiar or began getting familiar with biodynamics. And I was like, oh my God, the Rudolf Steiner guy's behind us too. This is nuts. <laughs> and then we get into meeting Paul Check and we're learning about Lucifer and Araman and, and how much of this just wild, wildly profound uh, articulation of, of these energies in the world and and how spot on it is uh, with with some of the things that have now manifested in in the current reality that we live is just nuts and so much of it's rooted in, in his genius and um, you know what I would love to maybe we can get into the to the Waldorf realm and and get into some Waldorf related questions and you know through your experience in that uh, educational system um, but would love to come back around to you know some of these other areas uh, that that Steiner spoke of you know including Christ consciousness and and these uh, Luciferian and Aramonic forces that that are uh, amongst us as well but from from the Waldorf side of things so I would imagine Steiner's schools after his death sounds like they scaled you know sounds like they scaled and have reached uh, the communities of of surely the culture that that we came out of because I I see Waldorf schools all the time. Do you sense or have you sensed in your experience that the schools maintain their authentic tie to what the initial intention of of the Steiner School really was during Rudolf's era? Good, nice question. I love you guys' questions. <laughs> the Steiner Schools have been strongly under attack, just like everything else has. But they've been under attack since the Nazis. They've been under attack since the materialistic philosophers and scientists of Steiner's time, who some of them made it their life's work to attack Steiner's work. Uh, and Steiner had to end up trying to defend himself against against that work. Um, there are still individuals who who certainly do that. And, and I've read those individuals. I and I and I know the shadow of Steiner just as I know some somewhat my own shadow. Uh, we always see other shadows than that our own easier. Uh, thank God for my friends. But the attacks have, have meant that individuals who, and this is and this is really interesting. <laughs> the smarter you are in the world now, the, the easier it is to manipulate you. Mm-hmm. What a and paradox! What, and what I mean by smart is I mean intellectually smart. 
And and so one of the things that Steiner really shared with us is the way to educate is through. He didn't use this word, but I'm again the translations are tough. But I would say intelligence. That intelligence always carries with, carries with it a, a, a sense of love and responsibility and uh, freedom. Whereas the intellect is a little bit like you used the word angst earlier or anxious. That the, the the etymology of those words literally mean to narrow. And you and you nailed that when you talked about using those words. It, you narrow your perception. You narrow your breathing, which Steiner says is actually just enlivened thinking, uh, and and that thinking itself is breathing. So that's an interesting, um, interesting possibility. So the challenge has come to to Waldorf teachers, and I would say to Waldorf organizations worldwide, to figure out where they stand, especially in things where it was extremely clear when he talked about. Um, substances that could be used for human beings that doctors would be willing to take money bribes basically for um or threats if they're not willing to take bribes threats to lose their jobs or have their families harmed or uh you know th those things put those things have been on the planet for a long time so the the challenge there is that that Steiner made that quite clear that these are these are nefarious to life. They're biotoxins. They're they result in cell death. And worse than that, and this is and this is the thing I think it's really important to recognize is when you become a Steiner teacher, you you assume hopefully, and this is less and less in our in our secular society, you assume responsibility for in a way the life of this individual throughout her whole lifetime. And part of the meditations you have on a child is, what was her birth like? Mm. What was the preparation for her birth like, if there was one? Sometimes there's not. What was her early childhood like before she came to me? And then how do I envision the things that I am doing and saying and the person that I am with her affecting her when she is now going to be 15, 20, 30, 40? When she comes to the end of her life, how will what I have done now, what responsibility do I need to be aware of in, in how I speak with her, in the way that I look at her, in how I call upon her? And then some Steiner teachers take that to the level of what did this individual bring with her? Mm -hmm. And how can I help take responsibility for that and help her remove the obstacles that will enable her to step into herself and her destiny. And then for teachers who really take an interest in, in human beings in front of them, where, where will this being end up? When this entity returns, it will no longer be Susie or Edmund or those personalities come and go, but the, the, the entity itself returns and, and what capacities what is this entity asking for in order to be able to unfold itself in the world? That's the real essence of what a teacher is always looking for. And the curriculum is just sort of a ruse. <laughs> yeah. All the curriculum does is it goes through the evolution of humanity. So the historical curriculum, you're looking when you bring Egypt, for example, to see, are you sensing a connection? This individual is remembering something through their time in Egypt when I'm sharing this work. Wow. So your, your evening preparation is not about factoids. 
It's about meditating on your children. Yeah. What is it that this particular individual needs? Or what did this class come together to learn? So some things will be individual and some things will be class-wide. And that's the meditation you take into sleep. And the first thing you do upon awakening is to reflect on what are the symbols like that, you know, uh, microcilia you got behind you. Yeah, yeah. Right? What are the symbols that are being revealed to me through that? And then how do I figure out what to bring? And that's why being a Waldorf teacher is terrifying because the curriculum is the human beings in front of you. If you've been playing around with the thought of Botox for forehead lines or crow's feet or just frustrated by your acne scars, listen up, my love. ClearStem just brought back their no Botox repair serum that tells your skin to repair itself and generate new healthy collagen. This has quickly become my favorite of their products, and here's why. The blend of growth factors, peptides, and collagen-derived stem cells immediately feeds your skin what it needs to bounce back from internal stress, UV damage, acne scars, and other environmental aging triggers. Bounce Back is perfect for anyone who wants to avoid Botox, prolong the results of their existing Botox, prevent further lines from forming, and those of us who deal with deeper acne scarring. These ingredients are the real deal and, as always, hormone-friendly and non-pore clogging, completely corrective and targeted for skin repair. You will notice your skin visibly smoother, brighter, and healthier looking in just a few uses. I personally use Bounce Back once a day, usually in the morning, followed by ClearStem's HydroGlow moisturizer. To get your lovely little hands on some bounce back or any of the anti-acne, anti-aging, truly clean ClearStem products, go to clearstemskincare.com and use the code Mimi for a nice hefty discount or check it out in our medicine cabinet linked in the show notes. You and your skin are going to love this stuff. The others is the other stuff is just so much. It's like I said, I could I could email you the list I made up, but our connection together is why we're here. We're in bodies to be in bodies, to love these bodies, to love this earth, and to to pull down and draw the spirit into it, but not to go out seeking. That's uh, you know, there'll be plenty of time for that. <laughs> out of time, actually. And so that's a high calling, Chase. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy to be distracted away from that high calling. Right. And it's easy. The three things that Steiner said will distract us from that are hatred of the spiritual world, doubt of the spiritual world, and fear of the spiritual world. Mm. And so when you go to interview your teacher with your young one in tow, those are the questions I would form around is, how does this individual look at children? What's, what is her conception of how she creates curriculum? And what's her relationship to fear, to doubt, and to hatred? Yes. Wow. Beautiful, beautifully deep. Wow. What comes up for me as, as you're speaking is the, you know, we, we have, have mentioned to you and our, our listeners know this, that 
We've had more conversations over the last year about building a family and having a child and the preparation work, not only on the, okay, what do we need to change in our condo, but also like reflecting in our inner world, like what do we need to address individually and together before we create a human, right? And so we've had more conversations around this in the last year ever than we ever have. And so schooling is something that comes up um, you know, especially as you hear about sort of, I'm going to use the word, the horrible things happening in the public school system. In my opinion, they seem pretty horrible for, for the development of children. And I can't help but think that the what you're describing is the basically antithesis of what is happening in in general in the public school system. In the public school system, as I view it, we are I'm using that word loosely, we are basically hoping and expecting a child to conform into the system. What's already there, what's already created, what's already here, the template that we've had, the cookie cutter that's that exists and has existed for hundreds of years, you're going to move into that and you are going to shape yourself to fit that mold, to yeah. be a successful employee and civilian, basically. And what you're talking about is the school and the teacher forming around the child, the individual, not only this life, but maybe past lives and future. And that is, I think, you know, uh, it's beautiful. It's it's like, oh, this sounds like a fairy tale, uh, mm-hmm. how beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just wanted to highlight that, uh, how different that approach is than what probably most children are experiencing. I don't know if you wanted to add something. Well, I, I would only add a, a question to to say that, you know, in your experience, Edmund, what are you seeing from the kids and the families that are Waldorf educated versus those that you've seen, you know, that that don't partake, that either go to public school or even like we went to a private Christian school, but but basically aligned with public school curriculum outside of the the Christian aspect. What, yeah. what are these what are these primary differences that you're seeing both in school and then as they uh, become alumni? Well, I'm a very practical person, so it helps me to um, work off of examples. Yep. So um, I recently had a conversation with a, a group of, of high schoolers and um, they're Waldorf and it's a it's a brand new Waldorf high school here in, uh, in Sandpoint. And they're different ages. They're uh, 9th, 10th, and 11th grade. And I sat down with them, and and in 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 so many words, I said to them, um, "I'm not going to lead this conversation, and there's no topic." So there was an initial kind of twittering and goofing around, and yeah. you know, posturing and kids trying to be as cool as possible and uh, crack jokes and and then talk about how well you know this is kind of weird because it's kind of like a you know therapy session or something like that. And, <laughs> and after, after they had front loaded all of those things, I just said, you're so I'm going to, I'm just going to invite you to, to close your eyes for, for 60 seconds and think about uh, a question that's living for you. Any question whatsoever, and just write it down on this note card, put it in the middle of the circle there, face down. I'm going to pick them up. I'm going to read them. And that, that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to identify who they are, and you guys aren't either. If you think you know who asked that question, that's not the point. Decide which question you want to talk about, and I'm I'm going to love to listen. 
and and that's what's possible in individuals who have had, even though they they still devolved into taking hands and having me be a leader for like two or three hands, and then I just go, guys, you see what's happening here? Every time I take your hand, who do you look at after I call on you when you speak? Yeah, me. Why are you looking at me? I'm not even a part of this conversation. But the fact that you're giving me the power to take your hand, to call on you, you see how that works? You see what we do? And we call this education. No, this is disempowered. Yeah. We're sitting in a circle here. I'm at the same, in fact, I'm at a lower level because I don't know what your questions are, what your life experience is. And so I'm here to learn from you. And so this looked at each other like, like we're not used to this. And even in Waldorf schools, they weren't used to it. And I consider that uh, a disservice. Mm. This is something that should be practiced from early on. This, the capacity Steiner said, question me on everything. Question me, experience it for yourself. Come to your own conclusions. Take nothing of what I, take nothing. I didn't take anything of what anybody else said. <laughs> so I expect the same out of you. We're not, I'm not looking for followers. I'm looking for, for leaders. And so that is something that if I sat down in a public school, unless it were a pretty amazing public school, they would look at me like I'm from Mars. And they were able by the end of a pretty short session. And I mean, I didn't have a whole lot of time with them because there's, it was a tight schedule. And they just said, Hey, would you come in? Because actually what they wanted me to come in and talk about was, uh, was alcohol use. And I meditated on that and I thought, sure. I mean, I could, I could talk about what happens to the etheric and astral and I being during alcohol use and what communities and, and I could go on and on about it. But is that really what is being asked for? Why do people make a make an agreement with the spirit of alcohol? You know, from a from a historical perspective, a, a, a god brought it down to the Greeks in order to bring us, drive us into our bodies, because the Greeks were so far out that they needed to come in. Now we're so far in, we don't need alcohol. <laughs> so Steiner says things out of time become evil. So. The, the, the wine was exactly what it needed to be when it came. And now it's not. But what is it that that young person is looking for when they move toward marijuana or alcohol? They're, they do opposite things energetically, but in the wine in particular, they're looking for connection. Hmm. So I said to myself, these, these kids need a time to have connection. They need the power to be able to have real conversations with each other. And... What I find is then they have the capacity for it. And not only do they have the capacity for it, Chase, they have the capacity to go far beyond what I have the capacity for once they pick up the reins on it. So that by the end of it, they were saying things that I thought, my God, like if I were only I was 14 years old, oh my God. I mean, I'd been doing roars and lemons and marijuana since I was nine. I've been drinking <laughs> gallons of wine. I, I have no idea like how to have a conversation with anybody, you know, and much less have the kind of vulnerability that they had. So when they, when they move on and when individuals interview them to either work with them or maybe to, to have some kind of higher education or mentorship, those individuals always came back to me, especially when I was teaching high school for, for those years. And they would say, where, 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 when do I get more of these kids? 
because they know who they are. They know how to express themselves with vulnerability that is sheer power. They have a joy of life and learning. They're, they're inveterate learners. There's no way I could drive learning out of them. I, could, I couldn't even imagine it. And so they don't have to unlearn anything. And with the rest of my students, I'm looking at automatons, mm. which is really Armand's dream. You know, I'm looking at consumers, future consumers, present consumers, consumers of the internet, consumers of, of stuff, working for somebody else rather than creating new things in the world. And so that's the, that's the biggest difference I've seen. And it's been very consistent since 1989 when I met my wife at the Walder School and we started teaching together. Mm. Amazing. That's so cool. It's uh, It seems like, you know, in short, they're not teaching you what to think, but how to think, which I know is is a, a well-worn phrase. But is that, you know, is that, does that resonate with what you know about Waldorf? Like how mm. to think, how to learn maybe is a better, is a better way to phrase it rather than just putting stats and facts and figures in front of your face and expecting you to memorize it and then spit it out on a test to show that you're smart and show that you can take orders and show that you can regurgitate what we want you to. It's like how to think, how to learn, how to be enthusiastic and curious about learning. Mm, I would say they already know how to learn. I would say they already know how to think. It's giving them the space to unfold that. And it's bringing incredible enthusiasm to anything that you bring so that when they learn about Egypt, for example, they learn about the particular human beings, not the events. If, if it's events, it's what a human being went through. Mm -hmm. And so they learn the soul of the individual who was there at that time. And again, there's a specific reason for that because we want them to realize once I'm there, did I interact? Did I hear the teachings or have a connection with this individual who lived her life during this time and who brought something? If you just bring facts, they're not going to be able to find that connection. And it's that, as you said, with the law of one, we're looking to inspire that eternal memory to awaken in them, that I am more than this being in this time. And that I have something to bring. I have a gift to bring from that time into this time. So the anything else is just a factoid. That's the intellectual piece that brings no joy to learning whatsoever. And so when they come into a new learning situation, they're coming with that lens of, you'll need, I need to learn that which I need to know. Mm. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. I need to learn that which I need to know. And so that that's almost this role of the the student. And it sounds like the the teacher is this facilitator of the the remembrance. Um, and maybe around the what is the role of the parent in this framework? And uh, if there's anything else to add as well with the role of the teacher or the student, but but under the the Waldorf domain, what are these these specific and intended roles for for student, teacher, parent? Steiner always suggested that with any kinds of deep relationships like this, especially ones that are going to be completely irrational, parents are completely irrational when it comes to their kids. A yeah. teacher needs to know that 
yeah. and needs to have a heart for that and needs to be able to be a loving guide for that and needs to be real. And so the shadow of Waldorf would be this kind of pretension that I have all of this wisdom of the book of Rudolf Steiner when none of us do, because only Rudolf Steiner did. And he's gone. He's been dead a hundred years. So that ain't never happening. I just got me and I got the best that I can bring. And so having the teacher be real around that keeps the sort of craziness that happens at Waldorf schools at bay. The craziness of like the teacher, almost like a goddess or a queen and so much in charge of that relationship with the child that the parents feel like accessories. Mm. And that's part of what your interview with them is sussing out. Are they comfortable enough in their own skin or are they pretty brittle, brittle di pretty didactic, pretty rigid in Steinerisms? Do they study more than just what Steiner brought? Because there are a lot of other amazing teachers who've been on this planet. There's a lot more to look at than Steiner. And so if that's the only lens they're using, that's pretty myopic. And they're going to have this solipsistic picture of the way that they present themselves and the world. And so you're looking for a teacher who has openness and who has humility. Because as parents, you need the space to be able to go, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much every day, all day long, or I just fucked up again. Mm. I did this, I said this, and you're looking for a relationship with a human being who can say, Whew, yeah, you know, I've been there, um, or I have no idea either, and let me, let me sleep on that for a couple of nights, and then let's have another conversation. But somebody that you're, you're, you're in the doghouse with, you're just like, man, like, I want to be this kid's dad. But lately, not so much. It's just, I just, it's not happening. And I don't, I can't figure out how to get from here to there. Those are the real conversations that you want to have. Not like I got everything together because I haven't met somebody on the planet who's got everything all together. And if I did, they'd be so bored. Yeah. <laughs> so bored. No doubt. Right. You know? And, and I did it'd be tough not to be cynical. I don't think there are any Galahads on the planet. And so we're, we're all, like Rumi says, none of us have gone far. And it's true. None of us have gone far. Steiner had a lot of stuff that he could have improved on, and he will, right? And uh, and you know there are a lot of critics in the world. And I just say, you know, for somebody who does so much, the more you do, the more people have the capacity to criticize it. Yep. And so, so the, the 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 art critics who like to criticize other people's art. I mean, if we were just had no art critics in the world, how many more people would try their hand at writing fiction? or poetry. Mm. You, nobody in the world is going to say anything, but this is awesome. Yeah. Right. How many would start drawing and painting? How many would play music? How many would sing? How many original, how many creators on the planet would we start having if we, if we just took the critic piece out? So you want that teacher not to be a critic, not to tear down, but always to build up, to build up the relationship with you to build up the relationship with the child, but not to take over that relationship. You don't want that teacher to become a goddess or a, or a queen because that starts to affect your relationship with that child as mom at home. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. This is a partnership. You're looking for, you're looking for a third partner. That's a, a really good reminder and something we'll keep in mind as you know, we're, we're years off, but um, you know, 
it's it's a it's it's a great nugget of wisdom um, because the teacher spends so much time concentrated and not just for one year, one grade, if I'm hearing you correctly, but multiple years, multiple grades. Yeah. 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 That's a long time to spend with someone and, and yes. it's worth it to make sure that it's, it's the right partner for what you want to create with, with as parents and then with your child as well. Yeah, so. totally. You know, you, you mentioned art and um, can you go into a little bit around the, the emphasis of the arts in Waldorf and, you know, from mainstream education, it quickly becomes like an elective, you know, probably like fifth or sixth grade, it's an elective. And if you don't come from a family of artists, you know, like I did not, I came from a family of business folks and I, st I stopped partaking in art uh, through school by whatever fifth or sixth grade. And then it was like, you know, I didn't touch a damn thing until I was an adult looking for art therapy to heal all my shit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the curriculum and, and the relationship to art in Waldorf? Yeah, art art is um, is the expression of the soul on the planet. It can't not be. So it's it's the symbol that can be reflected upon by the individual who's creating it. It can also be reflected upon by the teacher and the parents to to look into that soul with always with loving interest not with interpretation but to to let that piece whatever it is ray back into your own consciousness and to give you insight into what that child is expressing non-verbally through that art and often that non-verbal expression is derived from the first three years of life before memory really forms and those those are special years those are incredibly special years and sometimes that art emerges from the time before birth or even a lifetime before. And so the time before birth would be in the in the womb. So when that little being is inside you having experiences that are still quite spiritual and hoping to impress those into the world so that she or he can remember why she came. Uh, that's, that's the function of art. And the function of art is to have a true soul education always be present in it's to enliven the material always to enliven the material through our capacity to hands make us human beings the capacity for creativity make us human beings this is the, the hands are so incredible it's uh yeah that's a conversation all on its own mm -hmm. you know the fact that we're losing handwriting um Yes, the wisdom of the flow, the etheric flow of information coming through the human being and then through the hand is is a challenge for humanity. It's it moves us more into the zero one zero one mentality, which is more aramonic. It's more uh, the heart as a beat rather than a rhythm. Mm. And so, what a rhythm has a little bit of fluctuation, and it has a uniqueness. A beat is death. So we're looking for a rhythmic life and we're looking for an imaginative life, especially in the years where the children are doing all of this artwork. And each one of the arts has a different relationship to a, a sevenfold life process and an organ system. And I, I mean, there's a sevenfold process that would be uh, a series, not even a conversation. And again, that Steiner had this capacity to look at unity to look at duality, to look at threefoldness, to look at fourfoldness, 
to look at seven and 12. Those were the primary uh, realities. And, and I've created uh, vast charts for myself to reflect on in each of these neurological patterns to see how is it that we can move back and forth. This, the sevenfold sphere that we're talking about for the arts, this life sphere is, is predominantly in this, in this art sphere time. Uh, and that's a, a time unfolding sequence. That's why history is so important with it. Whereas the 12 fold is a spatial experience. And that's the realm of the 12 senses that we have and the 12 cranial nerves for thinking and the 12 worldviews that we possess in the world. And, and again, dozens of other connections that are 12 fold, including, uh, 12 disciples and why 12 disciples are so important. Those connections are what art accesses. Our access is the archetypal beings who stand beside us while we're in that classroom doing that art. Archetypal beings interweave with each other. They are all creative and completely open to one another. And these give birth to all of the archetypes that are used in men's and women's groups and in artwork that people try to access. They're trying to get a connection to these archetypal beings. They are all creative. And you're looking for creativity in that child you, look, you want that child to surpass you as soon as possible as the teacher. Mm. Wow, what a what a paradigm shift! Like, yeah. uh, uh, and you just just echoing a point you made earlier around questioning authority and how healthy that is. We're told not to, you know, maybe all oh, questions are allowed, right? But there's no like, don't challenge authority. So we, you know, a kid like me doesn't challenge authority until I adamantly oppose authority. And so there's this just radical change when I get feel enough in my body as a you know teenager to have the enough testosterone to give the middle finger to the teacher or the coach or the pastor or whatever it looked like in my life. Um, fill in the blank for however it resonates for you, but to be encouraged to question and to to feel empowered with the potential or the ability to step into a place of having an idea that is worthwhile to share and to massage with another individual, like a teacher or, or a wise person in your life, um, to create something that, you know, maybe greater than, than what you thought it could be like, geez, what a, what a mind blowing opportunity. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking like, how important is it? You know, let's take, let's say we have a kid in the next year and we're thinking in the next few years where, where leaning towards um, a Waldorf education. How important is it that we have an understanding of this curriculum? How, how much we dive into the work such that we can be supportive, not unlike a teacher would be, and even just the right you know vernacular and vocabulary and, and a, a clear idea of what the path looks like. How important is that in the role of the, the parent or the family member to the overall success of, of what this education could be for a kid. Mm. Well, I think the earlier part of what you shared sheds a lot of light on, on what I would invite you to reflect on, which is even the way that you and I, for example, tend to say like question authority and so forth. That's not even what happens in Waldorf because it doesn't get there. It's way before that where they're in love with life and they're asking questions. They're not questioning anything. Mm. You feel the difference there? Yeah. And so 
part of why I'm giving you that as a as a concept is you and I come from I came from a private school and then I came from public school. I didn't have Waldorf. And so you can't solve a problem at the same level it was created. And you and I are unconsciously incompetent in a lot of ways. And so the task for us is to become consciously incompetent. Yeah. And yep. then consciously competent. And then unconsciously competent. <laughs> and then we'll go back and we'll we'll find another one. Yeah. yeah, definitely. All right, real talk. If you're anything like me, finding quick foods that are actually healthy and intentionally sourced is not the easiest task these days. Take something like jerky. 99% have added sugars, preservatives, and are sourced from conventional, non-organic farms from stressed and possibly diseased animals. Yikes. Okay, what about protein or granola bars? Oftentimes these bars have way more sugar than protein, and the protein itself is usually bottom of the barrel, cheap, and low quality. We used to have the hardest time while traveling, like what the heck are we supposed to eat when we need something quick? Then I discovered Paleo Valley. Hallelujah! Chase and I's favorite when we need something convenient, like during travel. The beef or turkey sticks and superfood bars are literally an answer to my prayers. They are made from real whole foods with no added sugars or mystery ingredients and are super delicious. Even kids love them. Get this, Paleo Valley sources their meat and their bone broth protein exclusively from organic regenerative farmers. The animals are pasture-raised, grass-fed their entire life, and the farmers themselves are practicing regenerative farming. This means that they are actually healing our Earth's soil rather than killing it and stripping it like conventional farms. I feel so good knowing that I'm blessing my body with high-quality foods and supporting our Earth and future generations by supporting Paleo Valley. If you want to try for yourself, you can use the direct link in the show notes to check out Paleo Valley and use the code MEDICINE, that's M-E-D-I-C-I-N for a discount, or just check them out in our medicine cabinet at getmimifit.com. We're bringing you only the best, boo. Cheers. And so what I would say more than anything else is it's, um, it's a meditative life that is necessary because you have no idea who you're going to birth. You have no idea what the challenges or questions she or he will bring home and you don't have to. But what I would suggest is that you have an openness and a kind of a, a, a neuroplasticity, a, a heart kind of resilience, the adaptability of your body to be able to move in any direction you need to at any time. And when you have that capacity for openness, for positivity, for perseverance in the face of challenges, which with children, that's, you know, are for the course, they, when they find all of your buttons and begin to press them, then you can celebrate the music that comes out rather than the yells or the shutting down. Yeah. And it's that meditative life to be open to know that that's coming and it does nothing but, but but beautify this relationship with this the beauty that the two of you have together. So good.
there's, mean, no, there's no content that's needed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the absence of content. We're overwhelmed with content right now. Yeah. yeah. So true. Yeah. And what we're failing to recognize is that every concept is a spiritual being who wants a relationship with us. Every single concept is a being. Stars are just clusters of spiritual beings who have given out so much light, they got to find all together. So cool to hang out. Wow. You know, you, you mentioned we're overwhelmed with content. And uh, what comes up for me is, you know, I'd love your perspective on what does a healthy relationship for a kid look like to technology and to devices in 2023? We've got a dependency on it and, you know, from kids through adults, but specifically around kids, what does that healthy relationship look like to the iPad, the computer, the iPhone, and these various technological devices that are so much a part of our lives? I would say it's, in, in some ways, it's still a, it's a challenge even in the Waldorf schools, but the, the practice has always been to really trust that from a from a learning point of view, you don't give a child anything that they don't have the capacity to understand before you give it to them. So when you can build that computer, then you can use it. Wow. Damn. Yeah. So in Waldorf, you, you should actually learn to build a computer and learn what are you doing. Mm. Wow. Otherwise, you become a tool. You are the tool. Yeah. That computer is running you and you're fascinated by it and you're entertained by it and you're addicted to it and you become reduced to being a neurotransmitter, hitting the dopamine response. Bing, ball. Yeah. That's a yeah. slide. I was just thinking about creating something artistically, but then I got the ding. Right. Yeah. Or you open the 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 dinger to write something and something pops out at you. And then an hour later you put it down and you never even got to the thought that wanted wanted to come into the world. So the level of distractibility, the dopamine receptor, the serotonin receptor, we're reducing ourselves to neurotransmitters. And so when an individual is able to, to understand grief around death, it takes a while for a kid to really know when something is really gone. Like, what does that mean that grandma's just lying there and not breathing or speaking? That's all I know. But a concept of really death and grieving, there, there's a certain age where that takes place. And then a conversation, a connection can be there. If, if people are, are dying... Uh, of an earthquake, and you're old enough to understand that, and have a have a bake sale and send money there, and do something about it to empower yourself as a human being. Then let them know about the death, the destruction. So when you have the capacity to comprehend something, then bring that to that child. If not, it overwhelms them, it disempowers them, it makes them anxious, and once they're anxious, they're in their limbic brain or their amygdala, and the neocortex goes offline and can reflect spirit anymore. I mean, and this is not just children that we're talking about. No. <laughs> of course, because as you're speaking, I'm like, oh God, is he watching me while I open my phone to, you know, write a nice text and I get, I get- No, I'm watching me. I'm yeah. watching me. I fight with that. 
you know? Yeah. It's I so with all the things I'm talking about today, just to be super clear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Time. Yeah. And and so it makes me think, you know, as we talk about what's a healthy healthy relationship, like who of us even knows what a healthy relationship is with technology? We're doing our, our best to fill in the, the major gaps of, yeah. I don't know if anyone's an oh, expert I, in this area. I've wondered this often, like if we're all sick, who's going to be the one to know we're sick? Yeah. Yeah. If we're all addicted and I'm not going to, I'm not going, I'm not immune from that. I'm not immune from being reduced to a neurotransmitter, as you say, perfectly. It happens to me. And so I become afraid of, or I'm at least thoughtful of it. I won't say that I'm afraid of this, but I'm mm-hmm. thoughtful of how this is affecting, you know, our family members and our nieces and nephews, but then our future child, if I am having issues with it and I know that it is causing problems or I know that I'm addicted to some degree and I'm I'm consciously incompetent, how is this going to affect a child who is not thinking that way? It's going to be perfect. Have you ever have you ever studied any kind of a sport or something? I mean, yeah, I played basketball and volleyball uh, okay. growing up. And, Did you have a good coach? Uh, I mean, he was nice. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what makes the best coaches? The ones who sucked at the sport mm. and had to understand every single thing that could go wrong. Mm. You know who would make the shittiest coaches? Natural athlete, right? Ah, the star yes. athlete. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good reframe. Oh my gosh, I see what you did there. Yes, it's something that we have had to learn and put into place and recognize as a catalyst for our own growth, and that it's not going to be this aha moment where we suddenly get there and we figured it all out with technology. It is an ongoing relationship. As we have a podcasting business, as we sell supplements online. It's never going to be out of our lives. And so that ongoing relationship is a constant ongoing catalyst for our own growth. Mm-hmm. And I think just, you know, man, yeah, it's 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 something that I'm going to have to meditate on and journal about many, many times, I'm sure, as, you know, one of the many topics as we look to be parents. But it's something that we are very thoughtful of because I see people, you know, that are very close to us, that their technology basically, I actually listened to a book recently. It's called The Soul of Discipline. And it is just incredible talking about these different stages of development um, as the governor, as the gardener, and as the guide, as you parent your child in these different stages, very in line with, you know, from one to seven, you're sort of the governor, you're keeping them safe. And then the gardener is when you start to, you know, it becomes a team effort and you start to, okay, I'm going to hear you out and I will make the final decision, but let's hear you out. And then the guide is more of the teenage years where you're just in, kind of sitting back and, and making sure that what they're doing is in line with their dream, their one love, their objective, their goal, whatever that is. So these different stages. And so I was listening to the, this book and he was talking about um, you, it can get to a point where the the parent is not actually the parent. The The parent now is the technology. They are providing, here. here's what's real, here's what's not, here are the rules of society. And now it sort of places the young child on the level of the, the real parent 
I am now your equal and I have my own rules in my pocket of what reality is. And, you know, it, the book is outlining, like, how do we avoid that at all costs? Because you want to, you know, hold on to that relationship, that connection with your child. And it's just, it's, it's tying things together for me. And, and um, yeah, I guess there's not really a question in there. I'm just making a lot of connections with what you're saying and what I've already learned and have recognized as true. Well, there, I mean, there are two pieces there that, that, that you both have brought. The one piece about you being able to, to be the, the guy, the governor of your, of your young one is that when you're struggling, you're, you're a wounded healer. And we can only really, really bring forward what we have had a wound around or an addiction or whatever it is we want to call it, and then been able to work toward healing around that. And as you said, it's an ongoing process. It's not something that like, oh, I got this now. <laughs> like, I don't know what I got in the world right now at <laughs> six years old. Like, you know, not much. Uh, a, a, a dissertation helps you understand how really stupid you are. You just think, <laughs> before you do it, you think, oh, wow, I'm going to do this thing. And like, I'm yeah. going to get really informed about this. And at the end you go, oh my God, there's so much to know about this one little tiny piece of the world. And I don't know any of it after three years of thinking about nothing. Yeah. A podcast will also do that, by the way, for us. <laughs> yeah. Listening to and speaking to people like yourselves and others, it's like, holy crap, I know nothing. Yeah. So that's <laughs> the one piece. But what that wounded healer gives you is the capacity not just to teach the child and to know all the stumbling blocks that she'll have along the way of that internet addiction piece because you've been through them, but also you'll have compassion. You'll have empathy for the teaching that goes on. And this is the most important part of the teaching that the child is most permeable to, is the sense of connection and compassion that you have while you're bringing whatever you're bringing. And this is a little bit goes back to my question uh, that you asked uh, Chase about, and I said meditation. It's developing this love for every response that you give. And that love is what that child grows on. I mean, that literally is what the child grows on. The information comes and goes, but the love is what she remembers and what will bring her back to ask more questions and hopefully to have you not answer them, but to have you live with them, mm. with that young one. And so you empower them to, to help them understand these these answers are for you to find. They, I, I could give you what I know, but I don't want you to depend on me because... <laughs> I haven't been to the Walder school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, I mean we can we could go for for hours, I know, with Yeah. You. I want to get one at least one more question around Waldorf that I have and then I want to leave some space to to chat about, you know, some of the work that Edmund's doing in, in men's spaces, but I would say the last question that I have around Waldorf at this point would be you know, there's some criticisms around um the education and and usually, you know, what my experience with them have been is that it's, hey, you're not getting practical, hands-on skills that will be applicable into being, you know, productive and successful in the world as a businessman or something along those lines. Um, it's for hippies, you know, that's another one that that I've heard. Um, it's more feminine and creative and artistic. And so um, men or males, usually by the time they hit like wanting to compete in sports types of ages, will leave the educational infrastructure of, of Waldorf. What do you see as other criticisms? Um, and 
are they valid from your experience? Okay, great. Um, I made up, I, I have a list for you guys on this one. Too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I called it like the shadow of Waldorf. Yeah. You know, um, and we touched on it earlier with this idea that, that this heavy mantle or crown that gets put on the teacher that she has to know everything and she has to be deeply spiritual and it's, a, it's overwhelming. It's crippling. You know, that sense of analysis paralysis that could come in, like, I'm going to do all this for 50 grand a year. <laughs> right. Right. My God. Uh, yeah. And, and then, the, I mean, the funny thing you're saying really about the shadows, that's, that's one of the shadows is that a lack of, of solid benefits that teachers get, the lack of, of making enough money to worry about how to pay the bills and feed the kids. And, um, you know, there needs to be more thought put into the, the reality of, of the business of running a school the administrative aspect. A lot of times teachers graduate into like, well, I don't really want to teach anymore. I've been teaching for 35 years. So now I'll be the administrator. And the, everybody else loves that, at least initially, because they think, oh, she's going to understand everything. Well, she can understand everything about being in the classroom. That makes you a pedagogical director. That does not make you an administrator. That's a completely separate realm. And a, a lot of nightmares in, in Walter schools have ensued because of that. To the to the the sort of feminine education, it it depends entirely on the Walder school that you go move into. I when I taught in the Walder school I was in, uh, the girls' basketball team did not lose a game in fourteen years. Wow, that's competitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now at the same time, there's a shadow to that competition, which is they're playing a hundred games out of season. They can't take vacations with their family. They have injuries left, right, and center that just get taped up and get back out there. So they're they're creating perhaps lifetime injuries. Um, and you've got this amazing track record, but you've got to ask yourself, what what does that mean? And and so it really depends on the Walder school, on the on the human beings who are in front of you for for that kind of thing. So so the answer is yes, I've seen those things and uh, yes, I have not seen those things. And it depends, again, entirely on the ethos of the Walder School, uh, the human beings who are who are there in front of you. Uh, I've been inside of probably 65 different Walder Schools as a consultant. So I've gotten to see the absolute blissful bestness, and I've gotten to see things that I go, oh, holy moly, we're pretty far from the indications here. And Snyder made it really clear that, that there is, these are indications. These are... Uh, black and whites, because we're not looking for uh, uh, authoritarianism. We're not looking for this kind of lockstep. Uh, and that's why the, I think the Nazis were not very happy about creative thinking in his school or anybody else's. And so you're you're hoping for, for faculties that are connected to the times, that are current. Uh, so not this kind of antiquated Birkenstock, hippie, um, you know, peace and love and just artistic. I mean, the, an artistic process is a rigorous process if you're really engaging in it. It can just be bullshit, scrap, scribble some colors on a page, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about in fifth grade geometry, you don't get to use a protractor or a compass and your task is to design a perfect circle again and again and again and to wow. divide that circle perfectly and then to shade it perfectly you're talking about boundaries and perceptions of exquisite focus. This is not hippie. 
Right. You don't smoke a bowl and go in there and go, hey, you know, let's see what I want. How do I want to express my heart today? Right. Do you know, my with some paint and crayon. Yeah. Oh. Divide the circle into five, into six, into seven, into eight, and do it as well as you can and let yourself. Uh, there are, there is no, in a certain way, there's no correcting because that's not the way life is. You don't get to erase. So you're using a permanent pencil. There's this joke around, uh, you know, they say Confucius did his crosswords with a pen. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, there is a rigor, uh, but there are some teachers who that rigor may not be present. And again, that's why interviewing your teacher and getting a sense of, you don't want somebody didactic and you don't want somebody hippified. And there's nothing wrong being either one of those as long as they have the capacity to meet the child where she is, mm -hmm. to come out of themselves. Because education means to lead forth from where the individual is. And the individual is not you as the teacher. It's the individual in front of you. It's a selfless act of sacrifice. Yes. Mm. Well, we're going to be contacting you before we interview <laughs> any teachers. <laughs> I've been on teacher interviews too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's important. It's important. Yeah. yeah. Is, yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to share that that's coming up for you? Um, before we move the conversation towards a little bit of the, the time and effort you're putting into men's work, is there anything, you know, with the Waldorf education or the structure that, you know, it's really coming up for you right now that you would want to share? I think the, the thing that's living for me right at this moment, as you asked that question is, um, Steiner's conception of our capacity for thinking. When he was asked, what's going to be left of you, your legacy? He said, the only thing that will last is the philosophy of freedom. And for him, the philosophy of freedom, in German, that translates in three different ways as the exact same thing. The philosophy of freedom equals the philosophy of thinking, pure thinking. The philosophy of pure thinking equals the philosophy of spiritual activity. So when we're thinking purely, we're thinking freely and thinking spiritually. And the way that he described of how we do that, he used a, a fancy word called gemütlichkeit. And that what that means is, is impossible to translate into our language, but it means that there's a kind of a wisdom of the heart that the intellect is contained inside. And that that thinking is alive. He called it many, many different things, living thinking, etheric thinking, heart thinking. He, he called it so many things because none of those terms actually even gets close to what it is. Mm. But he suggested that it is the movement forward for the consciousness soul of the human being from the intellectual sphere of being to the consciousness sphere of being. And if we don't engage the heart in it, we will become the most solipsistic, antisocial assholes that you could ever imagine on this planet. And as you look around and as you look into your own heart, you can see that. You can see that proclivity that we have. This is There's this kind of movement toward time to myself or uh, my thoughts to myself or what I think is paramount. And part of what has contributed to that is the is the information overload of the internet. And the challenge of bringing children into that too early is they lack the discernment to know good dope from bad dope. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. They do not have discernment and they don't have discipline. And when do they actually have that in their lives? It usually develops in high school if you've done a good job 
helping them to educate themselves. And I don't mean you educating them. I mean helping them to educate themselves. I know. And then they have the capacity. They have the discipline. They have the discernment. But right now, what we have is at the touch of a button, any information, any visual pieces. So the pieces of sexuality that have been degraded, you can see them right there as a three-year-old. All you have to do is click the wrong or the right button. Information that tells you the most heinous things that may or may not be accurate, but you have no way of sussing out from a screen. There's no human being in front of you, the reality of that. And, and I work with children a lot on how do you understand the truth of something? How do you actually know from a sensory, from a feeling basis, from a thinking basis, when something is true? And how do you know when it's a lie? And we practice these in activities. It's essential. And the younger, the better, because they're more open then to be able to really sense how is it that a simple statement, I can feel something in myself and know this is real. Uh, there's an amazing book by Jacques Lucerat called And There Was Light. He was a blind leader of the French resistance and 6,000 times out of 6,000 times, he got it right that the individuals he interviewed were not going to break down the French resistance. And the 6,000 and first time, you'll have to read the book. But he describes his process of understanding the truth and how he was able to know beyond all certainty, this is real and this is no, this person will bring this, will bring our work down. Uh, so that practice of being able to orient oneself in the world to know the truth. Can you imagine the gift that you give a child mm. when the teacher is bringing something and the teacher doesn't even know it's true or not, but the kid does mm -hmm. because she's learned to know and to recognize truth. And that's something we can practice and we should be practicing as soon as possible with young children. I Amen. Mean, uh, yeah, I could use that that practice all the time as, yeah. a, as an adult. I mean, we're, we all can. We, we have been deceived and manipulated in a very conscious way at an expert level of cleverness through this aromonic tendency that lives in us for, for at least 100 years in in laser focus and more like 500 years since since the birth of the industrial and the birth of the the scientific age this idea that god is dead and that we rely only on the self yeah well i think of i think of even how long it took us to identify real food and how much unlearning it took just for us to be able to understand what real food felt like in our bodies how do identify real food because even even food that we would see at the grocery store that looks like produce has been through a host of different uh sequences that has disconnected it from from the life that it started out as or or ever was and it took years and years and years after you know we didn't have nutrition education or education on what to eat and we generally ate okay but it was overall mainstream but you know in the space that we work in which is a lot in the health and wellness space there is still a mountain's worth of education that has to happen in order for people to, if they've never looked at it before, identify what is actually life-affirming food for them to consume. And it's this stripping of what was indoctrinated into uh, the way we approach you know, what we eat, and then a rebuilding of what is actually true. 
what is actually real from a food standpoint. And I would imagine it's even on, on even a you know significantly larger scale when it comes to information mm. and and what we're facing from an, a world of over information and false prophets, you know, wolves in sheep's clothes. And, and we are so accustomed to wanting to outsource thinking that we're felt we're so lost because we don't know who to follow. But that's not right. Like that's the problem in and of itself is we are asking, who do I believe? Who do I follow? And it's like, it's actually you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what you are seeking is what's what is that phrase that Paul Czech says all the time? Like, what you are seeking is what's seeking. Like, what you're looking for yeah. is who's looking. Yeah. 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 There you go. Um, awesome. Well, I want to I want to leave some space to talk about, you know, men's work and why this is so relevant for you, why it's so important for you. This is close to home to me. You know, we've got a podcast here. We've got a community of many men who listen and uh, I've been in long dialogue with a lot of our listeners around uh, the the tough times that it that it is to be a male, and uh, even just masculinity, whether it's female um, or male, just masculinity at large, and and what is a healthy expression of masculinity, and and you know where did we get off track, and how do we reclaim some of these attributes, and what does it mean to be safe and provide and protect and be a leader and have this penetrating, balanced energy into the world and. So all of these things are are very very relevant, but but for you, what what has men's work meant? What does that practically look like for you? And and uh, you know, speak on 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 some of that if you will. Knowing that that raw information was actually being channeled, it was happening up the street from me, mm. and I was down the street getting the shit beat out of me and my whole family. Mm. And with my mom's third husband, he was just like an infant in a three hundred and fifty pound body. Just a lot of rage and a lot of inability to really express himself in the world. And so I I had dads that I that I learned how to be neglected from, um, where I didn't really exist. I had dads that you never knew if they would just beat the whole family up because of whatever happened to them on that day. Mm-hmm. And I had dads that were really incredibly intellectual and, and not in touch emotionally. And that that all contributed to me not being able to have really any quality relationships when I went away to college and not being able to think, not being able to think and just getting dismissed from just one of the finest schools where I had one of the best opportunities ever to to connect with you and beings. It was a, a school called New College. And I happened to be there when a guy named uh, Rick Doblin was there at the same time. Uh-huh. And so... Um, this was a time of, of of incredibly bright, loving individuals experimenting with consciousness, uh, and I I left after that after that experience because I did I didn't have the pieces I needed, and so what that drove me into after finding the law of one and finding Steiner's work is. Um, I found a man who was about 40 and a man who was about 60, and they really wanted to create a men's group. We were in Ohio at that point. And so we created something called the Western Reserve Men's Council, and there were about 50 men in this group. It was There was a lot of juice. Uh, and we did beautiful things like Fathering the Earth Day. Uh, we would create exercises. One of the things I love to do is to create exercises, either for individuals or for groups. This was a birthing canal made of men. <laughs> so yet, 25 men on each side 
And the man who was going to move through a birth process through these men. And then the eldest man, uh, Mark, at the end, was sitting with a candle and a drum and just had this beautiful rhythm of the heartbeat of the mother. And, and this was um, where the man gets to say, this is how I'm going to come into the world. Hey friends, did you know that the amount of muscle you have on your body is directly related to overall health and longevity as you age? Generally, people who have a healthy amount of muscle have lower rates of chronic illness like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and are better equipped to deal with acute illness like the flu. This is why Chase and I support the concept of muscle-centric medicine. To build healthy muscle, we need quality sources of protein. In addition to our quality meat, Chase and I also use protein powder to ensure we are getting enough protein each day. Our two favorite protein powders are the plant-based Organifi protein, which is organic, non-GMO, and glyphosate residue-free, and the animal-based whey protein by Keon, which is non-GMO and comes directly from grass-fed, pasture-raised cows with no antibiotics and virtually lactose-free. We love and use both daily in smoothies, stirred into yogurt, protein pancakes, and even baked goods. Getting adequate amounts of protein helps us feel satiated, build healthy muscle, recover faster, and maintain optimal body composition year-round. To try Organifi's plant-based protein, go to Organifi.com and use the code MIMIFIT, M-I-M-I-F-I-T, for a hefty 20% off. And for Keon Whey Protein, go to GetKeon.com and use the code MEDICINE, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, for 10% off. Or just check the show notes below for the direct link. Cheers to muscle-centric medicine. And so some of them wanted to fight like hell and have us restrict. Some of them wanted us to come down on him and he had to crawl through like a commando crawl. A couple of them wanted to dance through and have just incredible amount of space. So we just created this bow for them. And at the end of however each one of those men came through, there was this moment where they were welcomed, welcomed into the world by this elder with all of the rest of us in a tight circle around this man. And these are the kinds of experiences that are essential for me in men's work that we create an experience that has meaning and that creates the possibility for transformation. It's usually edgy. Uh, a lot of the work involves, for example, eye gazing with one another. And so much can get revealed through eye gazing. Past lives, future lives, present lives, uh, just simply, just simply lovingly looking into one another's forehead or eyes or uh, or throat chakra, and uh, so the expression of emotions is really, really essential in the in the men's groups that I'm in right now. The first thing that we do, without any other adornment, is we just share the emotions that are living in our bodies right now, mm -hmm. uh, and we don't give narrative around that. We just say checking in. I've got anxiety, I've got excitement, I've got some fear, I've got some deep shame, uh, and I've got gratitude, and I'm in. And we feel those things coming from that man. And then when we come back around a second time, we explore what those emotions, what's the story around what those emotions are, 
And then we work with each other to gently challenge each other to find, to discover something new. So we're not just reifying the story of who we are. No, you don't get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the death of psychotherapy and psychology is that reification of, you know, I'm this. And, um, and so that, that work of, of emotional expression and then the somatic work and then the gently challenging work uh, of people's implicit biases, uh, I find to be the most helpful things. Probably the last thing I would say about, about men's work is the uh, immersion in nature that I do. And nature sometimes provides 80 or 90% of the transformational experience. And all you have to do is just create the space and continue to hold uh, this opening with the mother. Mm -hmm. For men, it's just, I, and, and the funny thing is, um, I've done it with men. This is, this is probably about the 10th men's group I've, I've helped to create. Uh, or, you know, I started at 21 and 55, so it's, it's a lot of years. And um, I just had this conversation with my, with my colleague. We take men into the wilderness and had done so uh, for a number of years. And we, we just said to ourselves, you know what? And we both arrived at this almost simultaneously. It's time to invite women mm. and into the wilderness together. We've done our work with men for all of these years. And for whatever reason, the timing is right. And so we're going to offer something for the first time this August in Aspen uh, with everyone is invited. Mm. Wow. We got just super jazzed even talking about it out loud and saying, okay, we're actually going to do this. We're actually going to uh, open this thing up. So we're, we're just super excited about uh, doing that work. We both have a lot of, you mentioned masculine, and we both have a lot of feminine in us. When my wife first met me, she uh, she swore I was gay. Her brother was gay. So she like she knew gay. So I had this like long, beautiful, curly hair and this, this pink jacket on. And uh, I mean, bright pink. Uh, I think it was my favorite color. And I was just smiling at her the whole time, just like a, 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 what she saw as the archetypical gay guy. And I got to tell you, I wasn't thinking it. <laughs> yes. I was thinking this is a trouble that she's married. And, uh, and I am I'm smitten. I'm done. And so that connection with the, with the feminine, my, my, my colleague has that quite a bit as well. And it's really nice in, in, in many native traditions, that's called a two-spirited person. Mm. Uh, and it's what I think a lot of individuals who have this kind of openness or experimentation to saying, who am I? Um, originally, we were whole beings. We were entirely consciously masculine and feminine in one being half and half. And then we were divided into two sexes. And our task is to, we were given that as a gift. And our task is to consciously reintegrate that to become two-spirited people again. And sometimes I think what people in the world might be experiencing is thinking, oh, I am, I was this and now I'm this. And it's that's still a dual world. And I and I wish those people all the best. I would just say my experience is not that. Um, I've had experiences of being a woman being made love to by my wife in this lifetime, being penetrated by her. And I would say the freedom to be able to have that. Um, awareness and to sense into what that is, is really essential if you're going to do work with with either sex, with with uh, with a male or female. So those are probably the four pieces I would say about men's groups that are currently living in me. As you ask me that question, yeah, that, that's incredible, and um, would love to pull on the thread of of nature and 
you know, what you think is so healing about the process of working with nature and submersing oneself in it. Okay. So the first thing that comes to me when you say that is, um, is my inner child. It took a long time for my inner child to come out even to me. But when he did, he came out in nature when I was alone. And all of a sudden, I, I walked like my five-year-old self. I felt the heart of my five-year-old self. I could talk to and then actually talk from the space of being my five-year-old self. And the trees and the grasses and the sun and the cloud and the, the wind, those were my, my guides my lovers, my supporters, my listeners, there, there was no way that they would do anything but support absolutely any part of what came out of me. And it took me a while to get to that space of safety and trust with my own partner or with the men in my group. There was sort of terror around that, that level of vulnerability. And nature was what gave me the capacity to feel that again as an adult. Yeah, I can... I can... I asked that be I asked the nature question first before my next question, which was vulnerability in these men's circles. And even just the act of eye gazing can be like you like you said, edgy. Yeah. And I I had a had a sense that, you know, the the conversation around so nature and working with it is this sort of, you know, greasing of the joint when it comes to being able to to open oneself up and be vulnerable. Uh, and so my, my next question was, you know, I would imagine that in this work, you see a, a tendency for some level of hesitancy as it pertains to being vulnerable in these circles, or, I mean, we, ha we all have things that we think we can be vulnerable. Um, like th there, there are topics or things that I'm, that I chat, that have challenges in my own life that I'm comfortable sharing and I'm comfortable being vulnerable with. And then there's yeah. the really deep stuff. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. there's the really dark shit that you actually don't want to tell anybody. So I'm going to put forth this little like pseudo vulnerability to everybody just to check the list. Yes. How do you break through that barrier? What does it usually look like? You know, because there's that initial comfortable vulnerability and then there's like the I'm crying, I'm we or or I'm laughing. You know, sometimes you laugh your way through the things you think you're going to cry your way through. Right. But, where is that there is that release and it and it's here's me i'm 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 energetically spiritually naked in front of you and right. for the first time ever i'm just airing it all out yeah. what is, what does that sequence look like in these in these groups that sequence looks like if you want to experience that with the men around you then lead the way mm. do it yourself mm. and um you know, even after, again, 35 years of doing this work, I had this experience. Um, we had, so we have about probably 55 men in, in this men's group, but we break ourselves up into different circles. Um, but we come together a couple of times a year. And uh, I was new to this men's group. I just started because we, we moved up here from, uh, from Texas. And so I was brand new. We were with this whole room there was this particular exercise where people were toning and it was like a senior member of the group who was bringing this toning that we were going to do. And even with these men, there were some guys who were goofing off and, you know, not like, you know, a little bit like, oh, this is, you know, maybe this is hippie or this, you know, this guy's like out of touch or something. 
And for me, I, I was goofing off at first myself and I thought, well, that's interesting because usually when I'm goofing off or I see somebody goofing off, there's something there. Yes. And there is, there's some juice. And so I started finally, I was just like, okay, I'm going to drop in. I'm just going to do this. And as I was towering, all of a sudden I had this feeling like, man, I have a blood curdling scream in me. Mm. Immediately all the shame and guilt. And I'm like, I don't know these guys. They're not going to be able to hold this container. I'm going to be judged. It was, it was endless. I mean, the endless amount of stoppage was there for me. So I kept on toning and I'm thinking these things and I'm feeling all these things. And at a certain point, I just say to myself, Edmund, if not now, when? And I just opened my mouth and I let out this blood-curdling scream. And I, you know, it's the way with these things. You don't really realize why you're doing it until you do it. And then all of this memory of me holding myself back, waking up in terror as a child, not going to my father's bedroom because it literally had cork on both sides of the door. It was a pretty clear picture, never disturbed. And so this, this inability to express and holding that all of these years and then this moment and saying, okay, so there's this little one in me and this looks messy and I could get some stuff and I got some stuff. You know, somebody said, man, my, my ears hurt as a result of that, you know, and I said, yeah, I hear that. Um, Somebody said, I'll say, yeah, I was just completely in my zone and all of a sudden I just kept in a complete play. I hear that. So it's being willing to take the risk of the, the fallout and you and not knowing what it's going to be, not being in control of it and not knowing what's going to happen. And I found that that group was able to hold me and I was able to come to some, some incredible insights and that led to my little one being able to come out with those men. After all these years of work, mm. and that it, it also well also it, there was a three day I did a three day fasting with no water and silence in the mountains, wow. and that also the experience itself it didn't come out, but then after the experience, all of a sudden, full blown, my little one came out. This was a, I'm part of two men's groups right now. One's a council that oversees other men's groups in Santa Barbara, and. That was with that council group. And all of a sudden it was just, there I was little. And this group just was completely able to be with that. Um, and so this is a very recent experience. And this is after, again, all of these years of work. Sometimes men get into this work and think, I've done this for 10 years or whatever. Like I, I hear people saying like, yeah, I've worked through most of my stuff. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Uh-oh>. yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, you've worked for stuff. Like, what a funny joke you just told. <laughs> that is so great. That is so great. Let's sit down together. I mean, let's let's really d- dig in. So that's what I would say is is you know be the change you want to see in the world is is le- lead the way. Be incredibly vulnerable. Not know what you're going to say. Don't plan and just see what's there, and uh, and take the fallout from it. Be have that kind of bravery. That's vulnerability on, to the point of just terror. But if we can start to do that to each other, well, let's say it this way. If we can't start doing that with each other, being that vulnerable and open, we're not going to make it to the fourth density. 
the fourth density requires telepathy. Mm. Means everybody already knows as soon as you're thinking what you're thinking. Yeah. You know what you're feeling as soon as you're feeling it. Because you've made that agreement that yes, I will be that open. And I think the men's work gives us the possibility to move toward sharing the non-share. Mm. I love that. Yes. Oh man, so much, so much there. And um, I really appreciate, you know, as we ask you different questions, the the storytelling approach. Um, obviously, you're a storyteller, and it's it's a, so much it's appreciated on our end because. You know, you can get into inter interviews and it's yes, no, question, answer. And um, it's almost like it's this storytelling is an art. It is an act of creation and rather than just answering the question. And I just wanted to recognize that in you and highlight it and just say that I appreciate that about you. It's it's something that I feel like it's a, definitely an area of my life that I can improve on and, and grow. And so when I, I, I just recognize it in you and it's um, really wonderful to be in your presence and just listening. And I, I'm noticing in myself that as an interviewer, sometimes I don't have a question because I'm just listening as you tell stories. And it might not, it might not add to the actual interview, but I'm just like, yeah, wow. <laughs> you know, as you're, as you're telling these stories. I think the listener adds the most mm. any connection between people. Mm. I've, been in, I've been in groups with people where a man may not really share much of anything for months. And then all of a sudden he says something and it changes everyone's world. Mm. And we look forward to the, the next six months when that man is going to say something again. And the power of him listening through all of that time and then taking all of that in and then being able to bring something out of that, that's an incredible skill because you're, you're not just listening, you're deciding as you're listening, what are the pieces that I'm going to move forward with in the world? That's not a passive activity. It's incredibly active. And if we don't have those listeners, it's like uh, my, my first book when I was a little kid, my dad gave me The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. And I almost just memorized the whole damn thing because every word spoke to me. And one of the things he says at a certain point when they're all talking about what he's sharing and how, you know, they're just like, oh, this stuff's so great. You know, he, he says, but wasn't I also a listener? Yeah. The whole time I was speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, in a way, there's really no difference between listening and speaking, as long as when we're speaking, we're listening. Yeah. And listening, we're speaking in a certain kind of way. Yeah. 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 I love that. Oh, love it. What a, what a treat. Um, what a gift. We're a little over two hours here. Yeah. So we, can, we can come to a close and this has just been just an absolute gift. Edmund, as far as resources, you know, we've talked about law of one. You know, people should check out that book and there's just incredible commentary on the book as well mm -hmm. um, out there if it's a little too deep to to just jump mm -hmm. into the book. But Steiner and um, Waldorf, where can people learn more and, and maybe in a bite-sized way? For instance, um, I've attempted to read Steiner and haven't, you know, had as much recall attempting to listen to audiobooks as as much as I have had gotten from community. Like I'm on part of Facebook communities that are people interpreting Steiner, posing questions, posing their own commentary. 
And wow. I, I find a lot more efficacy in the way that I'm able to absorb a lot of his work through other modalities instead of going directly to the source. Is there any, is there any resources that you would recommend for people who are interested in Steiner, interested in Waldorf to, you know, dip their toes in, get their feet wet? I think what you're talking about where you have a, a learning community is, is ideal. Steiner was very big on the human encounter. I mean, that's what karma is. Karma doesn't happen without the human encounter. And so one of the things he always said to communities who were wanting to work spiritually is now you must get to know each other very deeply. Mm -hmm. And so you getting online in a community and as, as you said, being able to be vulnerable and saying, I don't understand this, um, or, you know, this, or, or I don't agree with this, right. Taking, taking that willingness to take whatever comes your way because it's how you're experiencing life and then deepening that community. And then out of that, you start finding the individuals who are resonating in a similar way with what your, what your questions are and what your path is. And so may, maybe this sort of splinter group evolves out of that work, but it's in really encountering the other human being and having those conversations, whether online or in person. In person's always ideal if you can. Yeah, I mean, his, his work, again, it's, it's translated twice. It's translated from the spiritual world and it's translated from the German. And the, here's something that I think is really important to know about Steiner's work. It's important, <laughs> you know, this sounds stupid. It's important when you read this, his work and then when you put it down, that you don't remember any of it. Hmm. Just marinate in it, in your subconscious. Live it, live it. Yeah, he's not speaking to your intellect. He's not speaking to your, the earthly understanding in the way that you're used to absorbing information. It's not information. This is an initiatory capacity. Hmm. You have the capacity to initiate yourself through this work. And that takes a new kind of reading. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a completely different uh, podcast, but, a, but quite frankly, a very essential one. How is it? What is the new way in the consciousness soul of taking in the capacity to move from the level of someone who's clairaudient and clairvoyant to the next stage of actually being able to not just hear it and see it, but to interpret it as an initiate. And then the third level, which I think the both of you have a, a good relationship with, is the more the karmic path of action, which is the adept says, how do I put this into the world? How do I incarnate this through my own body, through my own being, and how do I bring this to the fruits of this to other people? So those are three different levels of initiation that take place. And the capacity for that human being, that entity who was in this lifetime known as Steiner, to come through and interpret the spiritual world in that way that bypasses your intellect is the whole point of what he's bringing. The whole point of what he's bringing. It's it's called the draw to forgetfulness. Mm. You forget earthly memory, and you attain the capacity to remember. It's not even remember. You you attain in 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 the face of that, which is terrifying. Yeah. I'm laughing, but you know that I may not weep. Um, <laughs> have a mental breakdown. the The ability to 
to take this work in so deeply at a soul spirit level and to, to cook in it like you're a beaker and like you're your own alchemist. And that's what we have the capacity to do in this day and age for the first time ever in the history of humanity. That's what's so cool. And, and all these sources from Steiner may be in a way the less you understand, but the more you resonate. Mm. You're a tone poem. You're a symphony inside yourself. And the string section and the drums and the winds, they're all playing and they're being played upon when he's bringing this music. And this music is coming directly, as, as Pythagoras noted, from the harmony of the spheres. And it's playing through us. It played through him and it plays through us. And to the extent that you are taking this in, you're actually creating a new organ in yourself. And that organ becomes who you are and how you are in the world. And it becomes a new kind of intelligence that we have no idea what it is yet. Hmm. Or you can go to the online chat room. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, amazing, my friend. Amazing. Well, I can't. I can't wait to listen back to this conversation as I edit it and from a completely different perspective, just as a listener. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your light with us and all of our listeners. Of course, um, where can people learn more about? you if you have a website or if you have anything that you want to point people towards yeah. uh, please please do that well i did i did mention that jared and i are doing this piece jared pickard uh picard um uh through the be here uh website be your uh, farm website and so you could certainly go there and we're starting that in uh uh february um, I, I have a, just a, just a sort of a, a landing page site myself, my first and last name, edmundknighton.com, where I, uh, that's my home for, for, uh, private work. And, um, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist. That's my PhD. And then my specialties are in transpersonal psychology, uh, somatic psychology and the, the, postdoctoral work that I did, the pre-doctoral work was in neuropsychology. I'm very interested in the brain interface, the sort of spirit brain interface, uh, which I think is space, space as a being, but that's another conversation. <laughs> and my postdoctoral work is in family systems. So I work not only with individuals, but also couples, families, organizations, communities. Um, yeah. And doing just, just, it's all, all the work is the same. Really, it's just loving each other and figuring out uh, who we are as a result of that. And, and just bringing ourselves with, with all the, the, the sort of folkiness that we are, all the questions that we have. That empowers other people to realize we're, we're just all, we haven't gone very far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the only other thing would be um, the council group that I talked about is the um, uh, fire tenders through uh, Santa Barbara. And and so through fire tenders are also inspiration, which is, um, it's a, it's an umbrella organization that I'm a board member of that is, uh, it's based around a church that we have that, uh, that, uh, our ceremony, our ritual, our blessing is ecstatic dance. Mm, cool. cool. That's 
that is the basis of that work. And then the men's group and the women's, there are women's circles that grow out of that. And as I said, we're going to do a combination for the first time uh, after 12 years of just doing the men's work. So that's the fire tenders group. And I, I don't know that anything else is going on in my life except just, uh, yeah, just a whole lot of gratitude. Mm. Incredible. Love it. Incredible. Well, we'll we'll definitely have you back on if you're willing, because I'm sure we got hours and hours more of questions for you. Um, just so much gratitude for you. Thanks, thanks for giving us a part of your day and and for just sharing in this you know beautiful conversation. And and uh, yeah, I'm I'm I love you, man. Ah, uh, <laughs> you're both. Yeah, I mean, it's just I mean, what a relax. It's like I actually just feel like I'm in your living room with you right yes. now. Yeah, very relaxed, and and I do feel like we could chat all day and uh, go to some really really beautiful places, and uh, and I feel like we've just done that too for a couple of hours. But I'd be more than happy to uh, chat with you guys whenever you want. Oh. We'll, we'll make it happen. And are are you in Sandpoint all year long? Um, at this point, yeah, we still have a house in Texas, uh, and we came there from California. But uh, uh, sometimes I go to Aspen with my colleague, and we do some work there. He's got a, a home slash 35 acre sort of retreat center there. Uh, sometimes I go to Santa Barbara because he has the same same kind of setup there. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes I go to hunt in Florida. Cool. Well, we'd love to see you in the flesh at some point. We spend the we spend our summers up in North Idaho, Priest Lake. So we're close. Oh my by. gosh. Yeah, yeah, close by. So we'll have to oh, you're, you're 30 minutes away. Uh, and, and actually at some point I'm... Um, I did. I the first podcast I ever did was with Paul Check, uh, like a month or so ago. And after we got done, we had the same kind of long conversation. He's like, "Dude, we're gonna do like a series. Like we're gonna put together like this and this and this and this." And I'm like, "Okay, you know, we'll do that." And we haven't done it yet. But but he said, "When you do, we're gonna come down for three days. We're gonna journey. This is gonna be like this is gonna be so fun." And so, if you guys, where are you guys? What island are you on? Catalina or? Coronado, just just off San Diego. Okay, okay. Oh, oh yeah, down there. Okay, yeah. So, uh, anyway, when I'm down in that neighborhood, you know, that could also be a possibility. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll make it happen. We'll make yeah. we'll make one of those happen. Um, thank you again, and thank you to all of our listeners for hanging in there. If you ha- if you hung out till now, you're you are really our favorite. Um, so, thank you, thank you for hanging. Out. Mine too. Uh, yeah. And check the show notes for all the links. We will have all of that information for you there. And uh, we just appreciate you. We're grateful for you. We couldn't do this without you. We love you. We mean it. Go spread some light. Okay, bye. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. Did you hear anything today that expanded your mind, made you laugh, touched your soul, or caused you to think differently about this topic? I hope so. I invite you to share this episode with someone you love. It takes 30 seconds and has the potential for a great ripple effect. Our world needs more people having real, honest, and open-minded dialogue on big topics. And you never know, you may just change their entire day. We love you and appreciate you being here with us. Cheers.